Welcome to Let's Explore. This is Lane McCall, and I'm really excited for you to hear the episode today. It's a conversation between myself and Jared Allen. Jared is a licensed counselor, and he's been an associate pastor for about 10 years, so he's dealt with people and how people operate for a long time, and from the perspective of helping people to get to a healthy place to live their lives from. So I really had the opportunity to ask some questions that dive into the inner workings of us as people and relationships, and even in the end, I asked them just for some practical advice for us, no matter where we are, where can we start, where can we move forward from here to transforming our lives into a more healthy uh, a healthy image of a human being, because I think that's the goal of this podcast. We're exploring really our unlimited potential and what uncorks the uh, our best selves that are on the inside and lets us come out and enjoy life to its fullest. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I know I had fun having the conversation. I think you're going to like it. So Jared, you are a licensed counselor. Yes in the Oklahoma City area, mm-hmm. and you also delve into quantum physics, which you have a interest in. Yeah. Tell me a little bit to start out about your, your counseling practice. Okay. Like, um, what got you into that? Um, good question. What I would say got me in um, going in that direction was uh, an encounter that I had um, with God, I would say. Um, I was in my early twenties and I was just seeking God about, um, you know, what purpose does he have for my life? What direction should I go? And, and so I was, I was spending time with God. I was in the prayer closet and I, and I had what I would consider like this vision. And when I say a vision, I mean, I saw it within myself, but it was also kind of outside myself. And it was like, uh, it was like a video screen playing in front of me. And I heard, you know, inside of me a voice and, um, you know, what it told me was, I want to make you an instrument of healing. And when, when I heard that, um, the next, um, I guess, bit of information that came with it, and I want you to go to school. Now, I just understood immediately what that meant. Um, so when I, when I heard that, I also saw this this all kind of play out in front of me. And, um, you know, I just saw how, you know, God was wanting to, you know, basically use my life or that's how I interpreted it. And so, um, you know, I tried finagling that around in terms of like, well, maybe he just meant, you know, (laughs) be a pastor or something like that. And, um, you know, and I had, had people in my ear going, well, you know what, just, I mean, maybe what, it, what God meant was, you know, you're just supposed to, you know, help people and you can do that from a pastoral standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what I attempted to do for a lot of years and was very, I mean, I was, I was very much involved in people's lives and felt like, you know, I don't feel like school necessarily made me a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that was already within me and I was already functioning in that capacity. Um, it allowed me opportunity to learn new things, obviously, and experience, you know, new ideas and and learn some things. And uh, it gave me the ability, you know, with a master's to be able to get my license and then uh, see people. The but before I got there, I mean, I was I was seeing people in the church. I was under uh, Darren for um, about ten years or so, eight or ten years as his associate pastor, and would be a part of you know the counseling and. Um, 
you know, just helping people with life stuff. Mm-hmm. And one day I was, uh, I was praying and I heard God kind of issue a challenge. He's like, could you do this outside the four walls? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I just kind of sat with that. And the next thing was, can you take kingdom outside the walls of church? And of course, my answer to that was, yeah, I do believe I think I can do that. I do believe I can do that. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I started looking into, well, how would I do that? And so I kind of started checking into school and some things started lining up and, you know, completed all that and, and then went into counseling. Mm-hmm. And um, from that, I, you know, of course, I see couples, I see individuals, I see families, um, all age range, all kinds of issues from anxiety disorders to depression disorders to bipolar to relationship conflict and, you know, you name it, all those things, you know, I've been a part of. In the earlier, after school, I was a part of um, what is called therapeutic foster care, which is kids who are in the foster system who are like a step away from really going impatient, like they're having enough behavioral and emotional issues that uh, they need more intensive counseling. And so I was a part of that for a while, which was a lot of kids with trauma and uh, reaction attachment and mm. things of that nature. Very rewarding helping, you know, the kids. And <clears throat> and then directly after that, I went to work for uh, an American Indian tribe. Mm. And I've uh, been doing that for the last five years or so. In in your experience, what is there? what's the common denominator with people, just to go for the jugular right here? Mm-hmm. Like what's... What do you see as the underlying biggest need or maybe issue, but probably underneath that there would be a a need or a desire that people have? What is it that makes people tick that you end up sort of Mm -hmm. getting to the bottom of, I guess? Yeah. Well, I think um, a good model for me to uh, start to work from is I think... um, I think every human being has certain intrinsic needs that they're looking to fulfill and how a person fulfills that drive um, will determine whether they're functional or not. So as an example, um, I think everybody has a need for um, acceptance Mm -hmm. versus rejection or a sense of belongingness and love. Um, I think everyone has like a need for security um, ultimately, I think everyone has a drive toward a sense of significance or self-worth, needing to feel like there's some value in their life. And from that comes a, you know, and there's several probably others, I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't minimize because who knows, but at least six or seven that we know that are primary, primary needs that people want to fulfill in order to feel a sense of emotional stability, thinking stability, um, of course, there are some things that are that are um, biologically organic, mm. uh, such as schizophrenia. There's like a broken brain, mm. like there is such thing as as uh, brain abnormal, abnormal, abnormality, mm-hmm. if you will, that uh, allows for certain conditions to happen. But as a as a way in which things start to emerge, I think there's these drive to complete, you know, these sort of needs that are needed to be fulfilled. And then if a person starts to interpret life in um, a belief that is very negative mm. around that. So let's say there's a deficit of, um, of a need being met for love and belongingness and acceptance and affirmation and things of that nature. 
And if that's not being met in the environment, then there will be interpretations about that that will follow them throughout their life that mm-hmm. starts to impact not only how they think about themselves, but also how they think about the world and the people around them. And then their relational dysfunction starts to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we understand too that certain things like trauma impacts how a person thinks and and feels and um, definitely impacts the brain, the nervous system. And that keeps people stuck. One of the things that I've recently been trained in is is, um, a therapeutic model called um, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is EMDR for short. And essentially it's a trauma treatment that recognizes that um, networks of thinking can become maladaptive Mm. through traumatic experiences and things that we would, uh, in layman's terms, stuck. Mm-hmm. They're not processed. They're not. Okay. Um, they're not adaptive. So when something is worked through in an adaptive way, it adapts with the with the network. You can remember the event, but mm-hmm. the sting is not there. The juice isn't there. So people who still have that sting sort of in their thinking processes and their emotions, and they it seems to continue to trip them up uh, in their relationships in their life. That's maladaptive. Mm. Mm-hmm. That needs to be processed, and so that's a, it's a it's a trauma treatment in which a person will do uh, eye movements, which is there's more to it than eye movements, but eye movements is what people recognize this therapy as because because uh, essentially when when a person is going through like processing uh, a memory, they'll have them do bilateral stimulation, okay, which is um, uh, where they'll have them move their eyes by following their fingers back and forth at a rhythm. And they believe the science behind it is that much like when we go to sleep and we have REM sleep and our eye movements are rapid, rapid eye movement, that during those times we're processing information. We're kind of processing the day before and the information mm. and helping making it adaptive within our memory system. And so by doing those movements, um, it's a way in which they're able to process them. And it was kind of discovered accidentally by the person who uh, I want to say they were walking the dog or in the park or something, and they noticed their eyes was moving back and forth while they were thinking about a, an event that was emotionally charged to them, and they recognized they felt differently about the situation because of that. And so then that led her to uh, start to go down a path of, of um, researching this, and, and now it's one of the premier um, trauma treatments. Really? Yeah, the, the research behind it is very... Uh, positive, like mm-hmm. a high proportion of people who have had traumatic events have now, um, are like a large portion of those are able to adapt those memories and, and to find, um, you know, breakthrough and um, those memory processes. And the more important thing is that it's sustainable over time. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of times a person will, you know, they'll use a common cognitive behavioral therapy and they can receive some, some real help from that. In fact, it's one of the most researched therapy models there is, CBT. Um, however, sometimes maintaining that, mm. it doesn't always hold um, over a period of time. And what we're seeing with the EMDRs, in fact, it is doing a really wow. good job of sustaining it. W- would you say that most people that deal with, um, maybe they get stuck in, it, their relationships are turning out bad or they're stuck in certain cycles. Would you say that most of the time it's, um, I guess for a back of, lack of a better term, like a, a, a lack of processing certain things that have happened to them. Maybe they didn't know how to process. Maybe it was avoiding, they went through a hard time and they just want to stick it away in a closet, even on a subconscious level. Would you say that that's most of what 
people deal with? I, I think I think that's accurate in that statement in that um, when a person doesn't know how to process something, mm-hmm. the thing to do is to try to file it away somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the brain will do that automatically. Like you'll have people who have gone through uh, really difficult traumatic events and they will forget pieces of it, parts of it. And the brain does that very specifically because to remember it would be too overwhelming to the system. And so the brain does it to protect us. It can be difficult in trying to, trying to treat it. But with, with like say the EMDR, the way the memory networks work is they touch each other. So there's a ripple effect and they impact each other. Okay. And so once you start down a path, it can unlock things even that you haven't. Like I've taken people through EMDR and as they're doing it, um, they're remembering bits and pieces of what happened that they never thought of before. Mm-hmm. And it's coming to them in the moment and it's really amazing to them. And so with that, it helps them process it because it gives them more of the information. Mm-hmm. And you know, the interesting thing is most of our, most of our traumas, I, would, I don't you know, I want a blanket statement, but I think a lot of our traumas can go back to childhood okay. in some way. Which basically means that in the most vulnerable stages of our development, bad things are happening. Mm-hmm. And so it, with that comes uh, really unhelpful interpretations because you know, kids are experiencing things and they are great observers. They're great, um, you know, they're watching everything, but they're really terrible at interpretation. Mm. And so even things that they're seeing that's not directly happening to them, let's say it's happening in the home with, uh, you know, with the kids or, or with the parents, well, the kids will take that on as if it's happening to them because they feel one with their environment, they feel right. one with their parents. And if one uh, parent is abusing the other parent, then they themselves can feel victimized along with that. And so that it's very traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, or there can be other stressors going on in, in, in the family and they just interpret it in ways that create sort of belief systems mm-hmm. that support anxiety or depression or worthlessness or things of that nature. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you talk about um, things that happen to us as children. Um, in my spiritual experiences with God, when I I got into, I had a spiritual encounter with God in my early 20s that totally changed my life, right. where I went from a non-believer to the next moment God was showing up to me and he was pure love right. and very real. Right. And it changed my whole perception, my whole life. Right. And then I got into church culture for a lot of time and it became a lot about what I could accomplish, what I could do, how I could, you know, check all the boxes and look the right way and dress the right way and talk the right way. But what has really set me free has been, I had to get to the bottom of that. And I realized at one point that, okay, my efforts is the wrong way to go. And coming back to a place to where it is like being a little child where there's someone else that's taking care of me, someone else that's looking out for my daily interests and my future. And my involvement now is a lot more childlike than anything else I've experienced in the world, be it career, be it church, be it anything. It almost feels like that's that's returning us to a vulnerability state yes, to good. where we're that's good moldable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess, what would your take be on that? And from the spiritual aspect, because you're a spiritual guy, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. I, th- I like I like the idea of vulnerability. Um, I don't think there's any real true growth until we're able to connect with that vulnerability mm. um, because we're still in control 
And I think, um, I think the things that happen to us in our childhood teaches us the not to be vulnerable. And what I've noticed right. in my practice a lot of times is um, when people start to feel a sense of vulnerability, they have a reaction to that. And it usually comes out in a, in, in a not very healthy way. You know, mm-hmm. it's not very healthy. The reaction is anger or it's avoidance or withdrawal or something because we typically don't like the feeling of vulnerability, but it's extremely necessary wow. for transformation. Like we have to, we have to be able to go to the areas of, of vulnerability in our life. And, uh, and of course we can trust that with God, God's not trying to, trying to, you know, harm us. Right. Um, but I think transformation, you know, oftentimes is, um, it's a process of facing ourselves. Mm. And we really have an aversion of facing ourselves. Like we, we have a lot of blind spots and we have blind spots for a reason. Mm. And those, uh, but those blind spots are, are really, it's really needed in terms of seeing them. We need to be able to see the blind spots. Otherwise we're unable to, to transform. You know, one of the things I believe God started really um, communicating to me or helping me understand is that to know God I need to know myself. Mm. And to know myself is to get to know God. Mm. And it's not to say that I am God or uh, that God is me or, you know, or, I, or I'm somehow a God. Or, no, there's not, I'm not saying that. But we can only truly know God in the depths of our own heart, inside of ourselves. Mm. And part of that self-knowledge and that understanding, I mean, um, it goes back to much of our Christian mystics who taught the very same things, you know, that... You know, you know Eckhart, um, the mystic, uh, the German mystic, talked about those kind of things, and and even John Calvin talked about needing self knowledge to know God, and I think there's a fear behind that because people are like, well, isn't that kind of humanistic and all that kind of kind of thing, and I don't see it that way, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of that verbiage in our in our church culture mm-hmm. where you got to die to yourself and you're dying daily. And there's all that talk about dying and all, you know, and it gets really aggressive to self, almost as if self is something you can't trust right. or, or love or, yeah. or that it's bad because you're to die to yourself and all, all that stuff. And God asked me a question one day when I was tracking down that path, he said, why do you hate what I love? Ooh. And it really just sat with me and I was like, and so then I started really seeking that out. And what, what I come to understand about God and the whole dying thing is it was never dying to our true self he was ever after. Mm. It's the false self. Yeah. The false self that we develop through how, how we must function in our environment, the roles that we take on, uh, the... Um, you know, the, the people we become in our families, you know, there's, there's this idea in Jungian psychology that we have many selves, meaning we have many variations of who we are in different contexts, you know, the me that's at work versus the me at home versus the me at church. We like to think we're the one whole person and sure enough, there is a core that definitely runs through each one, but we take on like different personalities to some extent in those environments. Mm. And so it's sort of like those false selves are what we are truly dying to, mm. but we're connecting with our true self. Right. And our true self is who we are in the core of who we are. And that's who we're getting to know. Right. Which is the most liberating place oh, to it's a powerful, live yes. from. 
as you're talking, I started thinking about as when we talk about the false selves, in my mind, I'd like to hear what you think about this, but in my mind, I can identify those things with um, desires or um, uh, uh, not inspirations, but things that I would desire that I don't really desire or uh, intentions, motivations, where where our motivations come from, what is it that we're seeking after? So yeah. for example, on a very surface level, greed. Greed would be coming from a place of a fundamental belief that I don't have enough, I'm lacking of some sort, so I need to make it up with greed. It's a, it's not really me, but it's a desire that might shape a whole life. Yeah. I think that's right. I think you're onto something there. I mean, I've had those same thoughts myself and in that it does matter where our motivation is from. Mm. Um, I think about um, like, for instance, Jesus and the wilderness, you know, and, and the temptation, you know, where he was in the wilderness and, the, you know, the, the Satan figure, you know, emerges and, and tempts him, you know, tempts him to turn, you know, this rock into bread and so on and so forth. And had Jesus acted on that with his ability, you know, he had the ability to do it from our Christian tradition, he would have been able to do that. Right. But had he had done it, it would have been from the wrong motivation mm -hmm. of proving himself. So the question mm -hmm. is, if you're the son of God, do this. So the motivation was sort of like, prove yourself, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, you know, have ambition. Yeah. Have, you know, show, show us and prove to yourself and everyone around you that you really are the real deal. Mm. And the motivation would have been wrong. Now, there was a time in which Jesus did all those things. Mm. He did turn, you know, he multiplied the bread. Yeah. There was a time that he would do that, but it would be from a different motivation. Right. The motivation would have been from compassion because he felt compassion for the crowd. Right. Versus ambition, I need to prove myself mm -hmm. and I need to promote myself or, you know, so the, you know, the motivation does matter. Mm. You know, in, in that story, it makes me wonder too, that initial motivation to turn the rocks into bread, part of that would have been to feed himself mm -hmm. and to meet his own need. I'm going out on a limb a little bit, but yeah, exactly. Do, are we responsible for meeting our own need? Or is that a place that our heavenly father wants to be the sole provider for? Very good question. What I would say to that is there are indeed needs that we, um, we get met with relationships of others. Mm. And to some degree, let's say for instance, um, my sense of love and affirmation to a degree can come from my spouse. Mm but I can never fully put that on her because she could never fully meet that need. What right. that would do to the relationship is I would put an undue, undue stress on it, yeah. I would, and which would create a conflict or, or a frustration in the relationship. And, and expecting that from her obviously would put me in a state of frustration and anger. So there are indeed like our most basic, profound, emotional and spiritual needs I believe as a human being is met by God in mm. relationship to God. He uses other things in our environment, such as relationships that are close to us, but we have to recognize that that's only to a point. Mm. Like I can't put that on anyone else and expect that I'm going to be emotionally healthy. Right. I won't be. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So That's very, very point. good insight. I'm glad you saw that because that is true. Well, and for if you take that and you go into relationships, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I've had bad relationships. Uh-huh. You know, as a young man in high school, you don't have any idea what you're doing. Yep. Relationships that are purely self-motivated. Mm-hmm. You're just in it for you. And I'm sure you see that in your counseling practice a lot. Those don't work. No, they don't. They don't. And, you know, they, they're really emotionally charged in the beginning usually. And there's a, there's a great, you know, there's an enormous tie that happens. And, you know, they feel this person loves me and knows me and connects with me until they don't. Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. and that happens very quickly and rapidly. And, and, and that's because the relationship needs a maturity at that point. Mm, and they're unable right. developmentally to go there. Mm. And so then what happens is, is the relationship disintegrates because it can't sustain. It can't sustain the relationship needing to shift to a new place. But besides just being emotional, it needs then a different type of, of activity, such as mm. commitment and trust and those kinds of things. And as long as I need that person so desperately, I cannot truly love them. Mm. Think about that. Right. right. If I need you that bad, and one of the greatest... And I know this doesn't, this won't always set well with people, but one of the greatest gifts I can give to my wife is to not need her. Mm. Now wow, that sounds counterintuitive, yeah. but that now I want her. Yeah. That's a different scenario. Right. I want her. I want to be in relationship with her and I choose her. Mm-hmm. But if I need her, then I can't love her mm-hmm. because then there's a hook. There's a payout. There's a buyout. There's a, there's something I need. It becomes selfish. I'm loving you yeah. for the selfish gain that exactly. I get. Exactly. So yeah. it's not. It's not then unconditional. Right. It can't be. You know, I, one thing I want to touch on is when 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 you're talking back to the rocks and the bread again, but then to to um, put that up against Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes for five thousand that were there, not counting the women and the children. Sure. So, but when you look at the the acts that we really honor and really look back over history and say, that was fantastic what that person did, like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther oh, yeah. King Jr. Mm-hmm. or a Jesus dying on the cross. All of those acts that we really value come from a place rooted in compassion. Absolutely. Rooted in a desire to help others. It's like the big things that really matter. Yeah. Not the people that go make great products for profit, which we might really enjoy. This is a great microphone I'm speaking into that someone made for profit. Great, maybe, but the best things, even those have passion behind them. People that really care about what they're doing. They wanna make the best microphone they can Mm -hmm. make for other people. And um, tying compassion in with, and I've heard you speaking about, you know, your interest in quantum physics and going that direction, speaking about intention and motivation and how that, not only impacts the world around us, but impacts the person that is carrying the intention. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I think, you know, okay, if we were to take it theologically to, um, you know, our tradition, I think the fundamental um, reality is that God is compassion. Mm -hmm. It's it's not only a feeling, but it's also um, a, a... a movement. It's a, it's a, it's an activity. You know, mm-hmm. we lose a little bit when we say, well, God's unconditional love or God's agape or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We've heard that so long in relationships or in church, so it means nothing to us. You know, right. it doesn't really kind of hit us, but, but we see examples of these in our, in our world. Like you mentioned the Gandhis and they said, well, how could they, how could they be, you know, 
Are we going to say that's God because he was a Hindu or whatever? And I think anytime you see love where it's costing someone something, Mm -hmm. I think you're seeing the impulse of Christ. I think you're seeing at least a consciousness of Christ involved, that there is uh, a movement of what God is happening. Um, You know, someone asked me a question. I don't know if I can remember it exactly, but um, I think the question was, can I... Can I earn something from God, or can I earn love from God? And um, I, I, gosh, I wish I—I know I'm fumbling around. I wish I would have remembered it better. And the answer to that question for me is no. You can't earn anything from God, nor can you lose love from God. Yeah. Like it's not possible. I mean, if God is something, that's different than God has something. And we know we've all heard this probably in some message before. But the fact is, if, if I have something, I have a limited amount of it. But if I am, it, it is, I am what I am, and, and there's, no, there's no end to me right. until I'm no more. Yeah. And with God, there's never an end. So therefore, he's more than what he has. I mean, he's more than what he, you know, he's, he is it. Right. So it's, it's, no, you can't earn it or you can't lose it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it finds its, its movement toward, uh, we find it, we see it in compassion. Mm. Like it has a direction. You know, I think of this um, in scripture, um, in the in the or my understanding of the of the Hebrew tradition is that they based their culture and society and their um, their understanding of God based upon the Leviticus understanding of God is holy, mm-hmm. therefore be holy. And the way they seem to interpret that is be pure as I am pure. Mm. So they kind of their variation of holiness was on was on being pure, so abstaining. So they looked at sin sort of like catching a disease. So they'd right. stay away from them. They they'd they would, you know, construct their culture based upon, you know, staying away from sin because they don't want to catch something, so right, to speak. Right. Now that's the the feel you get from it. And then Jesus comes along and he says something very different. He says it in a way that they would catch what he was saying, because the, the way the sentence was structured, it was, it was in the same cadence. Instead of, be ye holy as I am holy, he says, be ye merciful as I am merciful. Wow. Now, he knew his hearers, who were Jewish, would have understood what he was saying and how he was changing and shifting an understanding. You've developed your culture and society and the way you function with people based upon this purity System and this purity code and all of your social orders are set up based upon this purity code. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, be ye merciful Mm. as I am merciful. Mm. They would have heard that as him sort of giving a new sort of governing principle of how to function in society. And the interesting thing about that is the word merciful, the translators changed that. Mm. They changed that because the original would be be ye compassionate mm. as I am compassionate. Now that made, I, I would assume, the translators uncomfortable because the word compassion, um, if my understanding is correctly, is in alignment with being a womb, mm. like a womb, a mother's womb. Wow. So it was like being moved with compassion would be like a womb that is pregnant with, wow. with action 
and movement. So literally it would have said, be ye compassionate as I am compassionate. Be womb-like as I am womb-like. In other words, carry this life that comes through compassion and birth it into the culture and society as. And so I see kind of, you know, the kingdom, if we want to talk about kingdom being, um, a, you know, a way culture and society is transformed. You know, we're, we're more worried about trying to get on top of those mountains so we can impact culture, you know, the seven mountains thing. Right. But when I hear kingdom, I think that's the best language Jesus had in the day mm. to communicate impacting culture and society that has justice and compassion yeah. at its core. Yes. And that the kingdom would, would bring transformation where we filtered everything through that compassion. Oh, that's beautiful. And so when I think of kingdom, I think of it as a way of thinking, a, of a consciousness, a way of living, a way of being, and a way of demonstrating on the earth. Not just dominion. We love that language because it empowers us and it almost mm. appeals to the ego. Mm, you know, where it's like, oh, I'm powerful. I have right. dominion. I can, I, you know, I can command things and I can be in control because we love to be in control. But to me, it's not about that. It goes back to being a child. Mm. And, and it goes back to um, allowing God to be in control and then using us by being moved with compassion mm. and, and literally recreating our world based on those principles and ideas. That's beautiful. That's when you say holy to um, the, the traditional idea of holiness, of being apart from sin. If you look, if you say God is holy, well, what was God before there was sin? (laughs) If that's holiness, (laughs) that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But in the Christian faith, we do believe that God is Trinity. Mm -hmm. So that means there was relationship before. Yeah. The idea is a, is a concept that, that looks like a circle. Mm. And that circle is the Greek word perichoresis, Mm. which, which is where we get the word um, choreography. Mm. which means there's a, there's a dance happening. It's a circle dance mm. between um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit that, you know, when, traditionally when we think of, of our theology, we think of a hierarchy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the perichoresis uh, removes hierarchy. Right. And it puts it in an egalitarian where a relationship where there. It is a profoundly loving, energetic relationship where there is submission to one one to another, and there is a dynamic of movement mm-hmm. that is in like a circular form where they're honoring each other, and there's a kind of there's not a hierarchy structure where one is dominating the other or come or are bringing information that there's an equality even within the Godhead, mm-hmm. and you know one of the things that I dislike about some of our theology and in the church uh, and, and in the past teachings that we've had is what it does to uh, the Trinity. Mm. For instance, um, I'm not a huge fan of the penal substitutionary atonement theory. Yeah. I, don't, I don't like it um, because it suggests that God is, is angry about something and God needs, in order for God to be okay with us, there needs to be death and someone has to pay and someone needs to be, someone needs to suffer for this and, um, and someone is definitely going to give their skin 
for this. And, you know, it's kind of good cop, bad cop scenario and God's angry and he's vengeful and he's got this, you know, I can just envision (laughs) blood vessels popping from his neck and he's, someone's going to pay. But then you got Jesus who's nice, who jumps in and, you know, he's like standing between us and drunk father going, please don't hurt him, you know, and I'll, I'll take the pain and suffering for them. Well, um, and that's been, I mean, I know I'm sort of strawmanning the position a bit, but the idea is that what it does to the Trinity and what it does to the heart of the Father, what it does to the worshiper who, who envisions that yeah. um, is not healthy. Mm-mm. And I don't, now I know that this is the, the God that some people worship. This is the God that some people, um, you know, give their lives to. It's not my God. Mm-hmm. I don't see it from that view. Um, I don't believe that that's a healthy position for the Trinity mm-hmm. where you got one that's mean and ugly. And the only way he can become loving is that he lashes out in vengeful anger on someone. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he can be nice and sweet. Right. I think that's a wrong view. Mm-hmm. I believe what the scripture says. Uh, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact replication of the Father. Whatever you see Jesus doing, that's what God's doing. I think they're one and the same in the sense that they do not contradict one another, where you have one angry and one trying to save us from his anger. I think think Jesus is what God has to say to Mm -hmm. us. So when we look into the face of Jesus and the revelation of Jesus, I think we're seeing what the Father is. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, you know, the Bible calls... Jesus, the word, mm-hmm. he's what God has to say to us. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you were describing the picture of the Trinity, of this movement, the dance, yes. and how it's an equal playing field, there's not, there's not a hierarchy. If mm-hmm. that, that picture, the description of that to me is so beautiful. That looks like beauty as opposed to some kind of triangle with one on top ruling the other. I mean, and if you take that down to, as a counselor, if you look at the picture of the healthiest human that you could know, yes. wouldn't it be someone that is so healthy that they are capable of completely beautiful relationships, whether it be with marriage, with children, with parents, Absolutely. friends? Isn't that what you're working to bring people toward? Yes, I believe that's correct. I think... I think the healthiest relationships are where um, people share power. Mm. If one has to have an unequal power in the relationship, then I think I think you'll find a level of unhealthiness in that. And for you know generations past, we we've seen a lot of that. I mean, you know, within the home structure, where you know the father or the husband is the most powerful one of the family structure, and you know, everything revolves around them. And, you know, and I see relationships that do that, you know, where, you know, the whole environment basically begins to revolve around the wants and needs and, and desires of, of the husband. I mean, and it, it would be wrong if the other one was ascending to, you know, I've seen relationships where the women were the most powerful. You know, it's the, the fact that anyone has to be the most powerful in the relationship is a discrepancy and it, and it creates an imbalance. And, and therefore it's not, even research tells us that the healthiest relationships is what we call egalitarian relationships where there's equal equality within the relationship and they share power. Mm-hmm. Now that goes against some of some of the teachings that we have, but I honestly think that a lot of that is a misrepresentation or misunderstanding mm-hmm. of how things work. Because if we were to base it off of Trinity, 
it yeah. flows much better. Right. Right. <laughs> it's healthier. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Even, even kids, I have two kids that are, uh, my son's about to turn 14. My daughter's 12 and you know, whatever authority I have in their life, it's my desire is that I can simply help to shape the, help them to make good decisions, not to rule over them, but to liberate them to have, to set them up for success. Absolutely. And they will hit an age to where there's no more, you know, if they want to come to me for advice, it'll be out of their own desire to, not because I have power and authority over them. And I think We've been taught a lot of things about husband-wife relationships in church culture, about even child-parent relationships. Yeah. That so one of the mistakes I made as a parent, I think, if I if I look back, and this is not to be critical of myself, but just self-evaluation, I focused too much attention on making obedient children mm. rather than making uh, powerful children. Now, there's a way in which you can teach children uh, to. Um, confront authority in a way that's respectful, right. in a way that's honoring, but you want to teach them to stand and have question to authority. That empowers them to to fully, in my view, to fully develop and to right. have just, a voice. Not just go along with not the flow. Not just go along right. with the flow. And yeah. I think I spent way too much time trying to make obedient children thinking that if I made them obedient, they'll right. obey God. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and my intentions were, well, I just was uninformed. And if I had to do it over again, what I would instill as is a platform for honest debate in those knowing that I still have the authority and I still will make the ultimate decision, but I want you to have a voice and I want you to communicate with me and let's, let's have dialogue. Yeah. And I think that teaches them how to, um, how to relate to people in positions of authority with strength yeah. themselves rather than just, I don't want a submissive, kowtow, you know, this, you know, overwhelmed, you know, young person. I don't think that's helpful to them. Yeah. I think we do, we do them an injustice when we, we teach them that. And so you want to empower them. You want to help them find their voice. And it's a safe environment. When my son, he, he, uh, give me an example of he's uh, in college now and he had just started college and he wanted to, um, he wanted to do something and I, and traditionally we'd said no. And he had the courage enough to say, well, I want to reconsider this. And I thought, great, nice. let's do this. I said, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to develop your argument for me. Mm. Tell me your reasons, come up, help me understand why I should say yes to this. Mm. And so he did. He went and he developed his 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 stance. He developed his his argument, and he brought it to me. And it was a good argument, and I uh, and it was a great position. His his points were well thought out and and um, uh, well articulated. And I said, you know what, you got it. Mm. I like I like I like your argument. I like what you're bringing to me. I'll compromise with you. Mm. I mean, he didn't get the full thing that he wanted to do, but he got he got the compromise and movement forward in the direction he wanted it to go. And that's healthy. That's the way it should be. You know, when our kids grow up, parenting is about obviously knowing when to turn loose. Mm. From the day they're born until the day they leave your home, it's levels of turning loose. And I've seen a lot of turbulence with parents and children when parents didn't know when to turn loose based upon their development 
because kids develop to a place in their, in their uh, person where they need you to let go for them to move forward. Right. And if you hang on when they're needing to be turned loose to some degree, um, it will create conflict. Mm-hmm. And I've had some turbulent moments, um, not knowing exactly when to do that, but, you know, because you don't want to give them too much but sure. you don't want to hold back. And right. the idea eventually is they will mature to a place where you won't be over them in terms of hierarchy. Right. But there will be there will be an equal relationship. You'll yep. be their father. They'll give you respect and honor as their father, but they're now equal to you. And there's a shift in thought there. And you're talking about natural kids, but I just mm-hmm. just got a glimpse of them. I mean, even our spiritual yes, relationship absolutely. and our, our spiritual maturation. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're a dad and you have kids, yep. don't you want them to come up to a level where you can converse and they can have thoughts and you can respect them? If you're really wanting to create a being that has a free will, that can grow, that can choose, what a, what a beautiful thing. Yeah, awesome. That, that's so beautiful. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I want to ask you one more thing. However, I would yeah, say okay, this okay. on that point. Um, that's where in the body of Christ... We need mature fathers. Absolutely. And what I mean by that is fathers who are not threatened in their position or authority or somehow their insecurity is so triggered that a son or daughter moving up into the things of God that are powerful and um, are, are, are in their gaining influence even, that you're able to celebrate that and not react to that in yeah. a, in a way in which you know, you have to pull the rug out from under it, so to speak. Because no one has all the answers. Not one of us mm. is an island unto themselves right. that is just the right. person. Exactly. So we can learn from each other. And if we're successful in what we're doing, we should be able to influence and inspire people around us to come up higher. And then we can look, I want to be able to look at my son. I do already look at my son and learn things. Sure, I mean, absolutely. And my daughter as well. One of the things I think... Um, happens and it, it definitely happens in churches too. It happens in, in all of, you know, society is that, um, we need to be growing in our emotional intelligence. Mm. And essentially what that means is, is we need to be able to grow in our ability to manage our own selves. We need to be aware of ourselves and we need to be able to manage those, those emotional dynamics. We need to be able to be conscious and aware in our relationships and be able to manage ourselves in those relationships. And that's a developmental thing. You know, we have to grow into those kinds of things. You know, the emotional intelligence field of study uh, has become quite popular into the business world and, yeah. and that kind of thing. But there is a true thing in which we have to, we have to grow in that. And a part of that is the brain development, mm-hmm. understanding that, you know, when we experience life, typically we experience it emotionally first. It hits the, the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, and then the pre- Prefrontal cortex, which is the most advanced part of the brain, has an opportunity to start to control by impulse control. Think things through. Be reflective. Having learning skills to be able to sort of um, put a stop gap between what I feel and react to and think it through and be able to process things in a way that's healthier. Mm-hmm. And so we need healthy spiritual fathers, healthy people within the church. I, I believe this, this to be true. You cannot say you're spiritually mature while being emotionally immature. Mm. It doesn't matter how many scriptures you quote. 
doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know and how much theology and how great you minister, if you're emotionally a wreck yourself and you're emotionally unhealthy, mm. the, two are, the two are together. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one thing before we wrap up, but, um, you know, as a listener to this, I would think, okay, <laughs> Give me some practical stuff. What can I do? <laughs> what What's something that you've that you've seen maybe help you personally? Mm-hmm. Maybe help people that you've counseled over the years? Could be something simple. Could mm-hmm. like I don't eat better, exercise. I don't know. What's What's something practical that you would point people toward? Well, I don't want this to sound overly esoteric and uh, or in any ways um, uh, disconcerting to people. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll just tell you what I practice. I I've spent probably the last six years uh, learning meditation. Mm. And what I've learned in my clinical practice, uh, see in in my field of of work, the counseling field, um, we know meditation works. Um, Politically correctly, we call it mindfulness. And mindfulness practices are ways of becoming uh, completely connected to this now moment. Uh, as as fully present as we can possibly be. So um, our our culture doesn't really lend toward being present. Like we're very busy. We have screens in front of our face, whether it's iPhone, iPads, all these all these gadgets that are in front of us. It distracts us, and we get sort of uh, uh, conditioned to always have our attention somewhere doing something, being distracted. Right. One of our our. Um, uh, child, one of the leading child psychologists, psychiatrist, I believe is what he is, um, and neurodeveloper um, made this statement. He said that our current 16-year-olds has the, um, the socialization and the communication skills of past generations nine-year-olds. Wow. And that's due to not having the interaction that we had to have growing up um, because we didn't have the things that this generation has in terms of things to distract them. And, you know, and I've noticed things like this with my son, like he texts way better than he can talk or he used to. Now mm. he's better at it because yeah. he's developed it. But, um, but I noticed that difference and I think, why is this? And that part of that is because that's what he's grown up with and he, right. he feels comfortable expressing himself in that way and he's able to do so. Mm. Whereas he's had to develop late of late how to communicate you know, his thoughts and feelings. So I practice pretty regularly um, meditation practices or from the Christian tradition, we call it contemplative prayer. Mm -hmm. Contemplative prayer or centering prayer, which is which we we focus our attention on God and we allow ourselves to be in the moment and become fully present without thought or feeling. Now you can never fully quit thinking. I've never done that. But there are ways in which you can be mindful within the gap between thoughts, and that's where you want to engage in. And what we know in research is that it impacts people physiologically. They're healthier. They have less high, you know, high blood pressure, hypertension, and all these things that are due to stress, and that it improves brain functions because when you're meditating, it puts you in the part of your brain that gives you more impulse control, planning, mm-hmm. um, the ability to be able to um, uh, it's the higher brain function, mm. um, and it moves us out of the part of us that are emotional and in flight or flight or stress parts of our brain. So, um, 
we know this by research that it really works. If I could teach my clients anything and they would take it, it would be those kinds of practices because we know that those things work. It'll, it helps us be able to manage our own emotions. It allows for us to be able to be more conscious of our thoughts. And what we know is that if a person be, can become more observant of their internal world, it gives them a sense of control of that world. Mm. And so I practice 20 minutes a day at least of uh, getting still, getting quiet. I try to focus more of my, on my breath, slowing my thoughts down. I don't try to not think, because that just creates more thought. Right. I just try to observe my thoughts and sort of like the, the, uh, the uh, metaphors, clouds passing through. Mm. When I find myself attaching to a thought and I found that I've caught myself seeing a whole image of things and you know, I just turn loose, let mm. go. And it's in the practice of letting go, you know, and returning back to that space of, of just being conscious and, and quiet. Um, you know, if a, if a person can practice that long enough, I promise you within three months, they'll feel a difference. Mm. There's, lots of, there's lots of different meditation um, styles and um, forms and what have you. I mean, there's just lots of systems of it. Every religious system has had one a practice of meditation right. from Christianity to, you know, Hindu and, and, and Buddhism and uh, even the uh, Islam form, uh, Sufism, the mm. mystical branch of, of um, Islam have had their forms of meditation and they have had them for years. And the reason being is because they work. Yeah. If one is ever truly going to have spiritual encounters, they have to connect with the present moment. Mm. And when a person practices being present, the quality of their presence is felt. Mm. You know when someone is here, when someone's gone. Yeah, and it really impacts people. Wow, that's what's the advice I would offer. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. For yeah, man. Thanks talking. for having me. Cool. We'll do it again. Yeah. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that episode of Let's Explore. It was a lot of fun for me to record it, and Jared was fantastic. He's a fantastic guest, and we're definitely going to have him on again. If you'd like to connect with us, the easiest way to do so is on Facebook. Just search for Let's Explore on Facebook. You'll see the logo. You can like us, follow the page, and send messages to us. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear where you're listening from. All the new episodes are getting uploaded as videos on Facebook, so you can easily share them with friends, family, coworkers, loved ones, sworn enemies, whatever. Just kidding about the sworn enemies. You shouldn't have any of those. But that leads me to our next topic. That'll be next time on Let's Explore. And okay, guess who's back? Don Keithley, Darren Begley, and we are talking about everyone's favorite subject. It's hell. Yes, hell. Once again. And uh, good news is nothing scary. If you haven't listened to our previous conversations on hell, you can check out episode four. And uh, we dive deeper into this fiery pit of torment that we've been sold as a scary place that you don't want to go to. Now, really, it's all, uh, it's all good news, and it's not what we've been sold. So there's nothing to be scared about. There's a lot of good reformed thinking happening, and um, Darren and Don have been diving into the Bible and even just showing in Scripture how it's not what we've been sold. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a great one to get rid of fear and get fear out of your life because fear has no place in this marvelous world of the love of God that we all live in. So that's next time on Let's Explore. Look out for that. It'll be out sooner than you think. So we'll see you next time.